It's interesting getting to the end of the book of Acts. We've probably been studying Acts for well over a year. I don't remember the date we started, but it's been quite a journey through the book of Acts. Uh, we find ourselves in chapter 27. There's only one more chapter, chapter 28. And so maybe good just to be reminded, the author of the book of Acts is a man named Luke. He wrote the gospel of Luke to an individual, for an individual named Theophilus. Name means lover of God. And he's set to give information, to provide this history, to put things in order so Theophilus could know the truth and the certainty of the things which he learned about Jesus. So in the Gospel, Luke was about what Jesus began to do and teach. And now Luke has recorded the history of the church, about a 30-year history of the spreading of the Gospel from the ascension of Jesus Christ, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, the Gospel moving from Jerusalem to Samaria, to all Judea, and to the ends of the earth. And that's kind of where we are now, Paul taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. He was arrested after a mob tried to beat him back in about chapter 21, I think. So between chapter 21 and now, he's been in custody by the Roman Empire. He's been a prisoner. Because of being a prisoner, he's had a chance to witness to two Roman governors, as well as a king, the Jewish king, King Agrippa II. And now he's pleaded to go. He's appealed to the Supreme Court to have his case heard. So he's on his way to Rome to be heard out by the Caesar, even though they found no charges against him. But that's how we got to chapter 27, because chapter 27 is a lengthy chapter, very historically accurate of Paul's journey, along with 276 other people, well, 275 other people, heading from Caesarea all the way to Rome. Now, the 275 people weren't along for the whole trip. They changed boats midway through, and you'll see that as we go through. I will tell you, Luke, being a doctor, just records a lot of detail for those that are into history, have found that it's absolutely astoundingly accurate and one of the most accurate portrayals of navigation of the Mediterranean Sea and ancient shipping and commerce in that area. So, As we read it, you'll get a lot of these details. I'm not going to elaborate on them. There's a whole book that was written about Paul's journey to Rome from the nautical standpoint, the accuracy of the way the winds are described, the way the the routes are described, and they figured out that historically it's quite probable that it happened just as Luke said. Everything lines up with accuracy to bring them to where they're ultimately going to get shipwrecked. So with that Introduction, verse 1 of chapter 27, begins with, And when it was decided that we should sail to Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to one named Julius, a centurion of the Augustan regiment. So they decided, okay, here's when we're going to travel. Luke includes himself. Did you notice that? When it was decided that we should sail to Italy. So Paul's going as a prisoner. Evidently, there was room on the ship for other people as well. So Luke is along for the ride. Boy, and what a ride it's going to be. Verse 2 says, Entering a ship of Adramedium, we put to sea, meaning to sail along the coast of Asia. Aristarchus, a Macedonian of Thessalonica, was with us. So Luke is there, Paul is there, and this fellow Aristarchus is there as well. I've been calling this Paul's fourth missionary journey. He's on a mission to Rome. God has told him he's going to go to Rome Didn't tell him the details of the trip. Had he told the details, 
Paul might not have wanted to go, but knowing Paul, he would have been all in favor of it. The interesting thing is as we see Paul heading out on this trip, it's not the first time Paul's been at sea. He's a seasoned veteran of sea travel. Matter of fact, in I think it's in 2 Corinthians, Paul gives a little resume of the suffering he endured for the sake of Christ. And that resume includes being shipwrecked three times and then left a day and a night floating in the deep on some piece of wreckage somewhere waiting to be rescued by another passing ship. No beacon, no coast guard, no GPS, none of that stuff. No mayday, mayday call. Just when your ship got wrecked, you floated at sea. And so Paul had this resume. Now those three shipwrecks and that floating at sea, that was before Acts 27. He had written 2 Corinthians already. So this will be his fourth shipwreck that we know of. So all I know is when Paul says, hey, Steve, you want to go on a boat with me? I'm like, no, Paul, no, thank you. I am not traveling with you. So we see the trip kind of laid out there. They're going to start there in uh, Caesarea, which is north of Jerusalem. They're going to head up to Sidon. And then we're going to watch them go around Cyprus and up to Mysia, where southern Turkey, that was the port where they change ships and then head toward Rome. But you see, they don't kind of get north up there toward Rome. They get pushed toward the south. You can kind of get a picture in your mind of this trip. It's a long trip, and it is going to be a very dangerous and scary trip for them. So back to Acts 27, verse 2, entering a ship of Adramedium, we put to sea, meaning to sail on the coast of Asia, Aristarchus and Macedonia, Thessalonica, probably one of Paul's converts from his ministry there, was with us, verse 3, and the next day we landed at Sidon. And Julius, that's the Roman commander of a thousand troops, Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him liberty to go to his friends and receive care. When he had put to sea from there, we sailed under the shelter of Cyprus because the winds were contrary. So the winds were coming. They were able to make a little bit better time by using the land to kind of block the wind from affecting their sailing. Verse 5, And when we had sailed over the sea, which is off Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra, a city of Lycia. That's at the southern coast of modern-day Turkey, old ancient Asia Minor. Verse 6 says, There the centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing to Italy, and he put us on board. So the ship they left Caesarea in was a smaller ship. It was a puddle jumper, you could say, like the difference between one of these big airplanes now, the Dreamliner beautiful plane, but that's a big cross-continent kind of flight, cross-ocean flight. But then there are those little planes, the little puddle jumper planes that take you from here to Atlanta or here to Richmond to wherever, and shorter trips. So that's the kind of boat they were on was this little puddle jumper boat. But then when they got to Mycenae, there's a big port, lots of commerce on the Mediterranean Sea. They switch ships, they transfer there from their little puddle jumper boat to a much bigger Roman imperial cargo ship, the Romans contracted out the growing of grain to Egypt. So it says it's an Alexandrian ship. Alexandria was in Egypt. And so these ships would take grain from Egypt all the way up to Rome to supply all the needs for the Roman Empire. So this is probably an imperial ship, which is why the centurion is going to have some say in the decisions. The captain of the ship doesn't get the final word, the centurion, because it's a Roman imperial cargo is going to be the one that's going to have the final word as they're at sea. But that's just a little explanation. The ship would be you know, probably 140 
feet long. It had 70, 75 tons of cargo at least. And this is the ship that everybody transfers. Now, this is the ship that now has 276 people on it. It's a pretty big ship. Verse 7 says, When we had sailed slowly many days and arrived with difficulty off of Canidus, the wind not permitting us to proceed, we sailed under the shelter of Crete off Salome. Passing it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens near the city of Lasea. So the winds are contrary. They're struggling to make time. Things are not going as well as they planned. From Mira to Canidus is about 130 miles. Depending on the direction of the wind, you could make that in a very short time or a very long time. The wind is contrary to them, so it's taking them a little bit longer to get there. I'm purposely passing over some details because it's a lengthy chapter, and I think that I want to stop as we get farther on and make some really, really important application about navigating life. Verse 9, Now when much time had been spent, and sailing was now dangerous because the fast was already over, Paul advised them, saying, Men, I perceive that this voyage will end with disaster and much loss, not only of cargo and of ship, but also our lives. Nevertheless, when the centurion was more persuaded by the helmsman and the owner of the ship than by the thing spoken by Paul, and because the harbor was not suitable to winter in, the majority advised to set sail from there also, if by means they could reach Phoenix, not in Arizona, a harbor of Crete opening toward the southwest and northwest and winter there. So they've landed on this island, the island of Crete, there in the Mediterranean Sea, and they've come to this little harbor wonderful little town called Fair Havens. Nice little harbor. People had their little fishing boats there, and there's probably a golf course and a retirement community. Sounds like Connecticut, doesn't it? Oh, we live in Fair Havens. We retired there. Wonderful little place. The problem is the time of year. Fair Havens isn't a really great port because of the way it faces. It's subject to the winds that would be encountered there over the winter. So your ship, if it's in port in Fair Havens, is going to take a whooping over the winter by the winds and the waves beating on it. Also, Fair Havens is not known as a real big time, lots to do kind of town. It's a fairly slow town, I guess you could say. You got 276 people with the prospect of holding up for three months in good old Fair Havens. And they're like, I don't know. It's going to be bad for the boat. Not much to do. I'm not sure we should do this. So they're thinking this through. And Paul, the tent maker, the preacher, knocks on the door and he says, hey, uh, I've got an idea. Here's what I'm thinking. I'm thinking that uh, if we head off for Phoenix, we're going to die and we're going to lose the ship and it's going to really not be a good thing. So he brings this to the attention of the centurion and the ship's captain. Can you imagine being the ship's captain and some preacher guy is going to tell you how to run your ship? Because Fair Havens is here, but then, you know, Phoenix is just, it's only 30 miles away. I mean, it's a really short little trip. See, the problem was the time of year, he says, the fast was already over. Did you see that in verse 9? The fast was already all over. What fast are they talking of? Well, what they know is that the timing of the year was this was the feast of the Israelites that is the only fasting feast. They have seven feasts of Israel, you know, Passover, Feast of Tabernacles, and those feasts. This one is the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. And this was the only feast that was a fasting feast. That was a time they would mourn and repent over their sinfulness. So this happens. They know the exact date that this is being spoken of right here, October 5th. 
the year 59 AD is the exact time we're speaking of here. Now, sailing on the Mediterranean Sea was dangerous from about mid-September to the beginning of November. I mean, you could do it, but it was dangerous. And the closer you got to beginning of November, the more dangerous things got. The winds kicked up. They were more fickle. Things were just more dangerous. Then from November on through the winter for the next three months, nobody sailed at all. It was just too dangerous to even try it. So if you were out at sea, you'd find a harbor to dock at for three months and you'd wait out the winter time before you could get back in your ship. So we're talking mid-October now. November's creeping up. It's a dangerous time and Paul gives them some advice. Now this isn't necessarily, thus saith the Lord, right? Paul doesn't say, thus saith the Lord, you know, we're in big trouble. I think Paul is saying, look guys, I'm not a newbie to the seas and I know the date and I know what happens at this time of year. I've been in three shipwrecks. I spent a day and a night floating in the sea and I don't want to do that again. So I'm thinking that if we head out now, we already see the winds kind of changing and I think it's going to be really dangerous for us. But notice, so there's the voice of Paul, the man of God. And then there's also the centurion is trying to make this decision. He's the one that's kind of got to make the choice. And then there's the helmsman and the ship's owner. And they chime in. And then there's the majority. Do you see that? Verse 12. The majority advised to set sail from there also because they want to get to Phoenix and just winter there. I think we agree that life is complicated. Is anybody here that thinks that life is simple? If you do, then you don't have any friends. And you're evidently you were hatched and not born because our families are complicated, right? Family dynamics are complicated. Work dynamics are complicated. Church dynamics are complicated. Relationships are complicated. Decision-making is challenging. There's all kinds of voices. Have you found that in your life? Everybody has an opinion about what you should do with your life. And how do you know what to do? How do you know where to turn? And that's where we find here's the man of God saying, hey, here's my advice. But then there's the advice over here and then the advice over there. And then there's the majority. This is what everybody else is doing it. You've heard that mom and dad, haven't you? Everybody else is doing it. This is what the culture says. This is where the general trends seem to be going. And that can be really tough and really challenging. So notice that they choose to ignore the advice of Paul and take the advice of the majority. And those, you know, again, who's Paul? Paul's a tent maker. What does he know about anything? They blow him off. And they decide to, hey, it's only 30 miles. What could go wrong, right? When's the last time you said that and lived to regret it? What could possibly go wrong? Well, verse 13, we'll find out. When the south wind blew softly. Oh, it's a beautiful day for sailing. The captain's out there. The helmsman's out there. And they get up in the morning. They have their cup of coffee. And they look outside, oh, feel the the south wind is blowing softly. Everything is favoring us going in that direction. You know, Satan will come along and he'll blow gently in the direction of sin. Oh, this just seems so easy. You guys know, I've shared my story. I love to get out and do two-wheel therapy. I like to get out and ride my bike. And I found that there are days when I'm riding into the wind and no matter how hard you pedal and no matter how hard you work, it sucks the life out of you. And you're just pedaling and working. But then when you're going with the wind, maybe you've been a runner, maybe you've engaged in some other activity that is wind-dependent. Golf, maybe. And you're trying to work against the wind. It's really hard. But then when you're going with the wind, it's like your energies are multiplied. And as I've been riding and thinking about that, I realized that the world 
has the way it blows. And it always changes. That's why trying to live according to the world is very complicated, very confusing, because the winds of the world, the winds of culture, always changing. This year, we're all in favor of this thing. But next year, now the world is going in this direction. And we've seen the winds change just in our own lifetimes. The winds of marriage, the winds of parenting. Oh, no, never spank your kids. No, we were wrong about that. Now we've got to spank our kids. No, you know, this and that. So the experts don't always know what they're talking about. If you want to go the world's way, the world has a wind that blows its way, and you will find it easy in your life to go the world's way if the world is what you want to do. If doing the worldly thing is what you want to do, hey, there'll be a, come on, Steve, let's go out. When's the last time someone called you? Hey, come on, I got this party I'm going to. Come on, let's go. I'll drive you. I'll take you. And oh, it seems so, oh, everything just fell in line for that. See, because when you're going with the world, there's going to be no kickback from that. But what happens when you're going with the world, you're going against God. And the Bible tells me, I think about this all the time, God resists the proud and he gives grace to the humble. If you are going against God, you will find resistance from God. Oh, the world will cater you along and help you along, but God is actually against you. And that's why so many lives end in shipwreck. So all I have to do, I got this one route that I go, I go down, I turn around just out and come back. So I know that if I'm going down and the wind is in my face and I'm struggling and wrestling, I know that all I have to do is turn around and when I come back the opposite direction, I'm going to have the tailwind and things are going to be a lot easier. That's repentance. If you find yourself struggling, you want to walk with God, but you're trying to please the world, repent, change direction. God is always going to blow in the same direction. The winds of God are consistent and trustworthy and not fickle. All you got to do is line up with God and zoom off you go. Now, the problem is when you line up with God, you set yourself against the world. You're going to be under pressure one way or the other. The question is, you want pressure from God or you want pressure from the world? I'll take the pressure of the world because I can withstand anything as long as I have God with me. So the winds are kicking up. The winds are blowing softly. Oh, let's go. Supposing that they had obtained their desire. That's how many people think. Putting out the sea, they sailed close by Crete. But not long after, oh boy, it doesn't take long, a tempestuous headwind arose called Eurocladon. Sounds like a dinosaur, doesn't it? And it's meant to sound monstrous. It's like this wind has eaten them up. The word we get for typhoon is the Greek word here for tempestuous headwind. The Eurocladon just means it's a nor'easter. The wind has now switched directions. That lovely little south wind that was blowing softly, now it's coming from the northeast. And it's coming right down off the 7,000-foot mountains of Crete, and it's swallowing them up. It's chasing them down. Verse 14 says, But not long after a tempestuous headwind arose called Eurocladon, so when the ship was caught and could not head into the wind, we let her drive. And running under the shelter of an island called Clauda. So they're in trouble. I mean, it is Mayday, Mayday. They've come under a shelter of this island now has blocked the northeasterly wind that's coming against them. And they're going to take advantage of this time to secure the ship because they know they are in for a battle at sea. How many have ever been in a storm at sea? It is one of the most unsettling and scary events one could ever go through. You are helpless and you are vulnerable. 
and this ship is about to really get hammered. So running under the shelter of an island called Clauda, we secured the skiff. You got a skiff. You got to make sure you secure that thing. It's just a little dinghy boat that they would use to get from the ship to land. They secured it with difficulty. When they had taken it on board, they used cables to undergird the ship. So the ship, ancient shipbuilding, mortise and tenon, these things are locked together with pins. They can withstand a lot, but not a typhoon. Not one of these northeasterly storms that is coming through. So what the sailors would do is they would wrap ropes or cables or bands around the ship to help hold the hull of the ship together so it didn't get flown apart and flung apart in the storm by the huge waves that are beating against the side of the ship. When, verse 17, when they had taken it aboard, they used cables to undergird the ship and fearing lest they should run aground on the Sirtis sands, they struck sail and so were driven. So they had two choices. They took the choice to let the sail down and just drift. They would point themselves into the wind and just let the uh, waves blow them and carry them. And the other choice would have been to put the sail up, let the winds carry them. The danger with that is this place called Sirtis Sands, which is on the African coast to the south. It's like a ship graveyard. Many ships have been lost in that area from the winds taking them and running them aground to the south. So they're now completely at the will of the wind and the waves as they're trying to navigate their way to Rome. And look at verse 18. And because we were exceedingly tempest-tossed, the next day they lightened the ship. On the third day, we threw the ship's tackle overboard with our own hands. Now when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small tempest beat on us, all hope that we would be saved was finally given up. So now Paul is on this ship, right? And Paul is supposed to make it to Rome. And Luke says, hey, it was so bad that we didn't think we we're going to make it. You ever been in a situation like that? I mean, we're like, I don't know if I'm going to make it through this. And I think that as we talk about navigating, the problems they're having are, number one, they're being tossed by the waves. And there's some examples of that in the Bible of how these things are used as an illustration for our lives. I had you mark Ephesians, right? If you would go there with me real quick. While you're going to Ephesians, I'm going to read one other passage to you. Just going to give you two passages. One is James chapter 1. It says, look, if any of you lack wisdom, this is verse 5, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God. Don't turn to Oprah or Dr. Phil. Ask God. Don't turn to your neighbor or your counselor or your therapist. Ask God. Let him ask God because he gives to all men liberally and it will be given to you. But let him ask in faith, not wavering. Let him ask in faith. Ask because you trust God. The problem is when you waver, he says, for he that wavers is like a wave, appropriate in the word, isn't it? is like a wave of the sea driven with the wind and tossed. So when you say, oh, I need to know what God wants, but you want God to tell you what you want to hear, right? You don't really want to know what God wants. You want God to validate what you want. And so you come to God and you go, God, here's what I want. And you're not really trusting God. What you're trusting is your plan. And the problem is your plan is really unstable and you're really unstable. And that's what happens when you're of... James literally says, you're a double-minded man. You have two souls and you're unstable in all your ways. Why? Because one minute you're going that direction. The next minute you're going this direction. I mean, I want God, but I also want me. I want God's way, but I also really want my way. So you're always torn 
between your will and God's will. And God is trying to speak to you, but you can't get anything from him because you're still hung up on what you want instead of laying it down and trusting God. So that's the first place, waves tossed by the wind. They don't have any will of their own. They're just tossed this direction and that direction. It's kind of willy-nilly, if you will. Now, Ephesians chapter 4 gives us another example. Look back at verse 11. This is speaking to the church in Ephesus. He himself, God, gave some to be apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers. These are people in the body of Christ. And they're there for, verse 12, the equipping of the saints, that's you, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Stop there. Paul just said, look, pastors, my job is not to do everything. My job is to equip you so that you all can do something. Did you see that? And so the result of that is everybody is built up by what you do. I was coming in today, just driving in this morning, getting ready to go up to the office, just do some final prep for Sunday morning. And I just saw that the grass had been cut. And I was like, thank you, Lord, for the guys that use their Saturdays and come out here with a lawnmower in the heat and cut the grass. Just like, maybe they're not teaching Bible studies and maybe they're not praying with people or interceding for people. Maybe they're just cutting grass. It just encouraged me. It encouraged me. And so many people are discouraged today that we need situations and places where we can be encouraged. The problem is, is that God's given you something. And by coming here to church, now I'm preaching to you and telling you God's given you something to use so that you can do and be prepared to do the ministry, the service that God's called you to do so that we all can be built up by the thing you contribute around here. Now watch what happens. It says verse 13, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. So again, stop there. Notice the word all, till we all come, till we all come to the unity of the faith. See, it's not just about you. Maybe you're growing in the Lord. Maybe you're studying the Bible. Maybe you're coming to to Bible study. You're coming to church and you're just being encouraged yourself. That's wonderful. But we don't exist alone. We exist in a body, in, in a family. And so the idea is to use what you have so that someone else can also be built up that we all cross the finish line together, right? Till we all come to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man or a mature man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, the more we are Christ-like, the closer we get to him, the more we are grown up in maturity. Now look at verse 14. This is where I'm tracking to. That we should no longer be children, infants literally, tossed to and fro, and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. So stop right there and give me your attention. Paul had written the book of Ephesians after he got to Rome and was in prison there. Ephesians is one of the prison epistles. And I'm certain that this shipwreck was fresh in his mind as he says that we should no longer be like children, immature. A child, you can just pick that kid up and put him wherever you want him until they you know, get a little older, then they're bigger than you. And that's a little more challenging. But when you have an infant, when you have a, a two-year-old or a one-year-old, you, know, you want to put him in the crib, you just go over, you scoop him up, and you just put them there, right? They are susceptible to where other people take them. They're vulnerable and they're unstable. And then he goes and he transfers to this ship, this nautical 
tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine, every wind of teaching. There's all kinds of teachings out there. The latest teaching is that there's no teaching you can trust, that there's no absolute truth. We were out on the downtown mall Friday night, and I got to talk to these wonderful, three wonderful young PVC students, sweet girls, had great conversation, and the conversation turned toward talking about the truth. One girl had said that she actually got anxious in talking about eternal things, about what would happen when she would die, and she said, I, it makes me anxious to think about those things. And so the conversation turned to discussing truth and really feelings, truth and feelings. And so I ran through a video I had seen about these things, just asking some questions. And I asked about, you know, so is it okay if I'm seven years old? If I say I feel seven years old, that's fine if you want to feel seven years old. I don't have, I'm not going to argue with that. I mean, I'm 35, but you know, I feel seven. Okay, I'm not 35. Then I said, well, what if I tell you I identify more as Chinese? Is that okay? Oh yeah, no problem. You're Chinese, yeah, whatever you feel is right for you. That's okay. What if I tell you that I'm six foot five? Well, if, if that's what makes you happy, then that's okay. So what you're telling me is I can tell you that I'm a seven-year-old, six-foot-five Chinese man, and that you're okay with that. Like, there's no way you can tell me that I'm not that. And she's like, yeah, that's exactly right. I know, I said the same thing. What if I told you I had really long, flowing hair? Would you believe that? <laughs> no, no, I can't believe that one. No, no, that's, that's enough. And we have ways to measure. There's this thing called time and chronology. Like you can track, I know the year I was born. I know what year it is now. I'm not seven years old. And we can measure that. And I'm not six foot five. We can measure. There are baseline measuring tools to determine truthfulness in terms of measurement and time. And yet this generation struggles with that. And they're being tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. The church the church tossed to and fro, whatever book is next, whatever popular speaker is next, we have the only and the greatest God-inspired book there is. Other books, yeah, they may have something to contribute, but have you seen churches go this way and that way and the other way? And so many times it's come by our CD set for $57. We'll throw in a set of Ginsu knives and you can have the 17 keys to being prosperous and being great. And they feed, listen, false teachers speak to your flesh and immature people believe them. And God says, I want you to grow up so that you become more stable. Not like a ship in the middle of an ocean being blown by every wind of thing that comes down the pike. Whatever, you know, you're juicing this and you're doing that and it's yoga, it's this, it's that. We're all over the place trying to find out what in the world matters when it's right in front of us all the time. The Bible says that the word of God is a light to my feet and a lamp to my path. One other thing before we go on, did you notice that on the third day they threw the tackle overboard and there were neither sun nor stars for many days? Did you catch that part? Neither sun nor stars for many days. Was that just an observation or did that mean something? You bet that meant something. That's how they navigated. The sky was dark and cloudy. The ship's being tossed around. They have no idea where they are. They have nothing outside themselves to determine where in the world they are. They're lost. They are lost, lost, lost. They cannot tell where they are because there's nothing outside of themselves that they can gauge by. You need something outside of you to know where in the world you stand with God and in the world. Now try this. This is a fun experiment. Get a blindfold. Go down to Pleasant Grove or out in a big field. If you got kids, teenagers, get a nice, fresh, crisp $100 bill. 
Stand at one goalpost, put that $100 bill in the goal right there, put your child at the other goal, down the other end of the field, put a blindfold on them, make sure there's no cracks, and tell them if you can get into that goal, anywhere in that goal, blindfolded, you can have that $100 bill. But if you don't, you got to do dishes for the next week. You make that wager. They're going to be thinking of that $100 bill. They're okay, I'm, I'm in, I'm game. And you know what's going to happen? You're going to put that blindfold on them. They're going to set out, and they're going to maybe make it about 30 yards. And you know what's going to happen? They're going to start veering off in a circle. And if you don't stop them, they'll go all in a full circle. It's amazing to watch the ability to navigate by using the things, the stars, the sun, the things outside yourself. You don't realize that you do it, but you do it all the time. You put the blindfold on, people walk in circles. It'll happen over and over again. And if you ask the person with the blindfold on, you feel like you're getting close. Oh yeah, I'm really close now. Are you walking in a straight line? Absolutely, straight line. See, I thought before I got saved, I thought I was walking a pretty straight life. That's not I talk to people. Hey, I'm a good person. You think you're walking straight. What you don't know is because you got nothing outside of yourself to gauge yourself by. You have no idea how crooked and walking in circles you've become. You're going around in circles. You need something else to navigate. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding and all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your path. Let's press on. But after long abstinence from food, then Paul stood in the midst of them and said, men, you should have listened to me. Don't you love that? I told you so. And have not sailed from Crete and incurred this disaster and loss. So I told you once, you ignored me. Verse 22, now I'm telling you again. Listen, church, somebody in here had somebody speaking on behalf of God tell you something and you ignored it. And now here you are again. David said, until I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I pay attention. You have a couple of shipwrecked, you get into a dangerous situation and you go, okay, I'm listening. You got my attention. And so now Paul has a chance to speak again. And he says, and now I urge you to take heart, to rejoice, literally, for there'll be no loss of life among you, but only the ship. Now, Paul, how do you know that? Come on, Paul. Look, we've all given up hope. We've lost hope. We're dead people. How do you know? How can you say we're going to lose the ship, but not our lives? How is that going to happen? Verse 23 tells us, for there stood by me this night an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve saying, do not be afraid, Paul. Paul was afraid. He's been in shipwrecks before. Do not be afraid, Paul. You must be brought before Caesar. And indeed, God has granted you all those who sail with you. I think Paul snuck off somewhere, pitching left, pitching right, up and down with the waves. He snuck off to pray. And he said, God, I'm scared. And God reminded him of something he'd already told him. You don't need new information. All you need to do is be reminded of the things God has already told you. God told Paul, you're going to get to Rome. And I'm faithful. I'll get you there. And he said, and besides that, you've prayed for all these people on the ship, 275 other lives lost. I'm going to grant them to you too. We are seeing lost people, dead people, get saved because of the presence and the prayer of the apostle Paul. I wonder if Paul ever said, man, God, how come I'm on this ship? Why'd you let me be on this ship? I wonder if he said that. I wonder if you've complained about the place that you are. God, why am I here? Why are you letting this happen to me? And God might say to you what he said to the Apostle Paul, look, there's a whole lot of lives at stake and they're watching you. And you're the only Christian influence here in this place. And Paul says it to them. He says, 
This is the God whom I belong to and whom I serve. Can you say that? Can you say that? When you grab your Bible, can you say, this is the word of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve? He says, do not be afraid, Paul. You must be brought before Caesar. And indeed, God has granted you all those who sail with you. Therefore, take heart, men, for I believe God that it will be just as it was told me. However, we must run aground on a certain island. That should change things. Paul is in complete control. Paul says, I believe God. It's going to be just like it was told. Verse 27, now when the 14th night had come, as we were driven up and down in the Adriatic Sea, two weeks of this, they haven't eaten anything. About midnight, the sailors sensed that they were drawing near some land and they took soundings. How deep is it? And found it to be 20 fathoms deep. And when they had gone a little farther, they took soundings again and found it to be 15 fathoms. Then fearing lest we should run aground on the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. It's a rough night. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship, when they had let down the skiff into the sea under pretense of putting anchors from the prow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. We need these guys. You can't let them get away. They were really committing suicide because they evidently didn't believe Paul. You see, Paul believed the angel when he said there's going to be no loss of life. But these guys are going, I don't believe him. So we're making a run for it. And again, everybody that sailed that area knows how those storms are. To get into a skiff, to get into a a little paddle boat in the middle of that storm would have been certain death. So they did not believe Paul. Now look who's calling the shots. Who's calling the shots on this ship? Where's the centurion? Where's the ship's captain? Where's the owner of the ship? Paul is in control. Why? Because he's filled with trust in God. He knows the outcome. Unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the skiff and let it fall off. Hang with me for just one more section here and we'll be through. And as day was about to dawn, Paul implored them all to take food, saying, today is the 14th day and you have waited and continue without food, eating nothing. I'm sure seasickness had a role in that. Therefore, I urge you to take nourishment for this is for your survival, since not a hair will fall from the head of any of you. I have that underlined as a promise to me. I'm claiming that, God. And when he had said these things, watch. Middle of the storm, he prepares a table for us in the presence of our enemies. When he had said these things, he took bread and gave thanks to God in the presence of them all. And when he had broken it, he began to eat. Now watch what happens. Verse 36, then they were all encouraged and also took food for themselves. And in all, we were 276 persons on the ship. So when they'd eaten enough, they lightened the ship and threw out the wheat into the sea. But as Paul trusted God, he's able to, in the middle of that massive chaotic scene, to lead everybody sort of and say, hey, let's eat. Let's take some food. We're going to need the energy to swim after we get shipwrecked. And notice what happens. Everybody else watches him. And they're encouraged by the way he is in the storm, by what he's doing. And it encourages them to imitate him. See, the real challenge of the Christian life is not what happens when things are going great. The world knows we're great at praising the Lord when things are going great. But then we'll turn around and curse him when things go bad. It's the book of Job, right? Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. That's maturity. Too many pulpits are filling itching ears with words of, God wants you to be great. No, God wants you to be mature. And maturity means sometimes you deal with suffering in a certain way 
with faith and with trust. See, so many people, I see we're overrun with victim mentality in our world, right? Everybody's a victim. This makes me feel bad. They got rooms at school. If you're at a college now and the professor's going to share something in the study that might hurt your feelings, you can go to this safe room where you can play with bubbles and plastic toys and sit on a beanbag chair and make you feel bad. That's true. That's true. This is college. Because you might hurt my feelings with what you're saying. Your opinion might hurt my feelings. We're all victims. So Paul was in no control over the situation, right? He didn't make the choice to make the trip. He didn't make the choice to become a prisoner. There's some things in your life that you can control, right? But there's some things in your life that you can control. And this ship ride was one of those things in Paul's life that he couldn't control. But he could absolutely control how he dealt with the circumstances he was in. He could take time to feed himself, not with bread, but with the Word of God. He could take time to pray, and he could live as an example for others going through the same thing he's going through. He wasn't in control of the situation, but he is in control of a response to it. And I want you to notice this, that is he going to make it to Rome, gang? Listen, is he going to make it to Rome? So can we agree that other people's bad decisions will not deter God fulfilling his will for your life as long as you trust him and believe him and serve him? Did you catch that? Bad decisions that other people are making in your life cannot deter God from accomplishing his will for your specific life as long as you trust him and obey him and follow him and serve him. God will take you right where he wanted you to go. And you'll look back and you'll find out it was all part of the journey in the first place. Amen, church.